on Doc Power Hour. I am your host, Donya Craddock. Doc Power Hour, a show dedicated to discussing and analyzing social, political, economic, cultural, and international news and topics that confront various communities all over the country. Again, I am your host, Danya Craddock, and we have an exciting show on today. We have Dr. Piner is a professor of political science at California State University, Chico, and she's the author of several books and serves as the Race Politics in the United States book series editor at Anthem Press London. She works primarily in the areas of race, gender, and ethnic politics in the United States, social welfare policy, black political thought, globalization studies, and whiteness studies. In 2018, Pinder was invited to present her work, The Luminality of Whiteness and Its Problematics for Race Politics in the United States at the Newberry Scholarly Seminar in American Literature. Let's welcome Dr. Pinder to Doc Power Hour on Doc Radio. Can you just really explain to our audience your role? You were the editor on that book that is separated into like five different sections. Can you just do us a quick overview of black political thought, which is produced out of Cambridge University Press? Shout out to Cambridge University Press for, you know, publishing this works that will probably act on for decades. Um, so go ahead and give us a little bit more information or insight. Okay, yes, thank you. Black political thought, actually, it's divided into six sections or parts. And the first part deals with slavery and its discontent. Mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, second part deals with reconstruction. Uh, the third part, black nationalism. Uh, the fourth part, race and racism. Uh, the fifth, feminism and difference. And the last part deals with past, present, and future issues. Uh, actually, each part has a very specific theme, uh, which uh, comes together to describe and explain how blacks in the United States as individual and as a group have in various ways addressed and responded to the unequal political, economic, and social underpinnings of the United States. And, and uh, while it draws on existing works that take into account the past, present and future experiences of blacks in the United States. Uh, Black political thought opens up new ways to help in the analysis of the unequal position of blacks historically and at present. Okay. Great, 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 great. And I just want to, you know, I'm going to jump into the sections, but understanding black political thought how do you think that impacts the political, the historical process? How do you think that impacts the contemporary process of, of the phase of the election that we're about to go through in 2020? What should we take away from black political thought then and into 2020? Okay. Actually, a black political thought, I started off with a quote from uh, the famous W.E.B. Du Bois. 
and uh, W.E.B. Du Bois uh, tells us uh, uh, that it is a peculiar sensation, this double consciousness, this sense of always looking at oneself through the eyes of others, of measuring one's souls by the tape of the world that looks on in amused contempt and pity. And actually, um, I've been reading Franz Fanon, uh, the, post, the French post-colonial scholar, uh, Black Skin, White Mask. Uh-huh. And he talks about uh-huh. ontology, And uh, I I will try to paraphrase him, but he said ontology does not permit us to understand the being of the black man, for not only must he be black, he must be black in the face of the white man. Some critics will take it upon themselves to say that this preposition as a converse, I say this is false. The black man has no ontological resistance in the eyes of the white man, for overnight the Negro has been given two frames of reference in which he had had to place himself. And this is what W.E.B. Du Bois talk about when he uh, talks about uh, the double conscious, uh, the double consciousness, and uh, I think the problem for uh, blacks and um, all people of color or all marginalized people is this problem of whiteness being the norm, right? Mm-hmm. And of course, uh, we know that a norm is never originary; it's always responding to the anti-normative and the anti-normative this in this case is blackness so one can say that blackness comes before whiteness mm-hmm. but the problem for blacks in the United States would continue to be an issue because whiteness is the norm and unless whiteness is denormalized uh, blacks and other people of color and other marginalized mm. groups would continue to be on the margin of society. They, would, they will continue to be seen as the other. And so uh, I think this might propel uh, blacks in the United States to think seriously about uh, uh, their uh, voting behavior and who uh, they would like to elect for the next president of the United States of America because when uh, the first black president uh, President Barack Obama was elected uh, there was this uh, this notion that the United States is now colorblind and it's now a post-racial society. Uh, but of course, uh, with the election of Donald Trump, uh, no one need to pretend to be colorblind mm-hmm. anymore. Uh, actually, Americans or white Americans can be as racist, as sexist, as homophobic, as xenophobic, as classes, ages, as much as they would like to. And so I just want to say that um, all marginalized groups need to come together to uh, resist uh, the uh, present um, administration. But as I said in Black Political Talk, we are not the same. We all have different issues that Mm -hmm. we want to focus on. And I think it's important uh, to uh, just uh, get uh, together uh, in a kind of solidarity to think about these issues, even though uh, our issues would be different depending on how your position in terms of your race, your gender, your class, your sexuality, your age, your uh, political disposition, and so on. Yeah, I want to, you know, I'm happy you went there. I want to talk about, you mentioned um, 
just trying to deal with who we are as a people. And I want to say our wretchedness and consequence of slavery. That yes, is yes. by David Walker. It is part of the David Walker Appeal. Um, it is a book uh, with four articles, four different articles. And in that he mentioned, like you stated, it is not us that we want to be black. We see who you are. We see what you did. Yes. And we have we parallel ourselves um, religiously in the Bible. So we know that there is liberation coming. It's not that we hate ourselves. We are looking for our own humanity. Can you expound on that? Because it does kick off with David Walker. Yes, and yes. and I think that is rightfully so that we kick off this book with David Walker. And yes, just yes. talk a little bit why you chose to kick it off with David yes, Walker. Yes, because actually uh, David Walker wrote about uh, the uh, atrocity of the slave regime. And uh, David Walker encouraged uh, blacks both free and slave to resist slavery and to uh, try to uh, move beyond this idea that blacks are inferior because, of course, uh, 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 the slave regime uh, project onto blacks this notion of black inferiority. Uh-huh. That's why, uh, for example, uh, Friedrich Douglass, uh, when he uh, delivered his speech, and asked the question, uh, sorry, he delivered his speech, what to the slave is the 4th of July? Mm -hmm. And he asked the question, must I undertake to prove that the slave is a man? Uh, Obviously, uh, he doesn't need to prove uh, that uh, the slave is a man. He has no intention to prove that slaves were indeed people. The institutions of the laws, ideology, cultural practice, which continuously dehumanize the slaves and undermine their personhood by upholding the idea that their lives were unlivable and not grievable, clearly assumed that they were people. In fact, their daily acts of violence against slaves were to convince black that they were less than white, Uh, through the physical, psychic, epistemological, and ontological Mm -hmm. violence, the white man became a man. I Mm. put man in Uh uh, italics, Mm -hmm. you can't see it, Uh, by legally and culturally overpowering blacks to to his will. That's why uh, David Walker insisted uh, that blacks are not inferior uh, to whites. It's this society that... uh, create all these institutions and laws and policies are to make uh, mm-hmm. uh, black and, and, uh, and, and, and he also, they also go on to say that a lot of times they do that oppression, that disenfranchisement that dehumanization because they're trying to prove their own humanity yes, that yes, is the only good, yes that's a good point actually uh, because uh, every time you uh, dehumanize a person you take away from your own humanity Right. Mm-hmm. In order to dehumanize some someone, you have to take away from your humanness mm-hmm. in order to uh, dehumanize them, and that is the problem. Right? Uh, the laws in place during slavery uh, knew that uh, the slaves were human beings because then the laws wouldn't make any sense. Right. But constantly, 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 uh, the slaves had to be dehumanized. Right? They had to feel less. Uh, uh, than their masters, right? Right, right. And so uh, that's kind of where that, where that, 
that whole political concept, the political thought is kind of reshaped there and not just adding a humanity and equality yes. in there, you know, because you, you have them. I th- think they talked about how they have them considered as uh, shadow property and all those dehumanizing thing, the items. And so I think it was just important. And I want to say in that particular period when we deal with slavery and the discontent of it, how do you see that? From David Walker, I, I believe that was 1730, and then we get down to Frederick Douglass. Yes. How do you think there was a shift just within that whole construct? There was a shift in ideology and thinking and what it actually means to the African-American. It kind of shifted, but they were still still dealing with the same issue. Yes, the same issue of slavery, right? Uh-huh. Uh, actually, uh, they are... Uh, the, those in section, uh, the fourth section, slavery and its uh, discontent, right? Uh-huh. They all uh, dealt with uh, slavery, uh-huh. uh, but they all dealt with uh, slavery from different uh, viewpoints. Uh, actually, in the book itself, uh, part one, there is this uh, wonderful historian scholar at UCLA, uh, Brenda E. Brenda Stevenson. Yes, yes. She actually uh, gave an uh, entire uh, summation of these uh, different authors and how they approach uh, the issue of uh, slavery in different ways. But I think uh, the end result, uh, all the authors in that section would argue that slavery uh, was uh, terrible, not just for the slaves, but for the masters too, right? Mm-hmm. Because you just made the point. Uh, when you dehumanize someone, you have to take away from your humanity. Mm-hmm. That's why uh, uh, Ferrari, uh, the pedagogy of the oppressed, the author mm-hmm. of the pedagogy of the oppressed, he argued that uh, in order for uh, the oppressed group right. to liberate themselves, right, they should not wait on the masters to do it. And that was part of David Walker's argument. Do not expect uh, the masters to free you from slavery. You yourself have got to resist slavery. Yes. Yeah, you've got to rise up. Yeah, you've got to rise up. Resist, resist, resist. Yeah. And I want to, and I do want to talk a little bit about, because Maria Stewart, she wrote, yeah. Why Sit Ye Here and Die? Yes. So yes. what was she expounding? How did she different from um, David Walker, you know, David Walker and then... I want to say, ooh, um, Frederick Douglass. Yes, actually, um, she was the uh, first American-born woman uh, to all a series of lectures before a gender-mixed audience. And uh, as uh, the book tells us that uh, uh, Stroth, for example, studied the Bible carefully and after leaving Connecticut to move to Boston, where she married a black seaman, she was able to study history and classical literature, and she became part of a Christian and abolition group. So uh, she was uh, friends with uh, 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 with David Walker. But the important thing about Stroth in our lecture, she felt that it was her duty 
uh, to teach and preach and even bully uh, uh, black people, uh, whether they were free or slaves, into what she called moral reform and political action. Mm -hmm. But of course, it was very difficult uh, uh, for a a black uh, woman uh, to follow that path, right? Because in the article on feminism and difference, you uh, have uh, this old concept of the race of womanhood, because for black women, race and gender are not mutually exclusive categories of oppression, Mm -hmm. but come together to oppress uh, black women in a very, uh, uh, very uh, specific uh, ways. And actually, uh, this uh, this chapter that I was just talking about was written by Mary Church Terrell, and uh, it's titled The Progress of Colored Woman on page 220. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so if you're out there listening, and we're going to go, because this is a lot of information, so if you're, <laughs> this is like a, I mean, this is so important to political thought and how we move forward how we navigate this especially being an election year and so we're actually going through the book and i just kind of it's kind of i know it's kind of fast paced and it's a lot of information that is covered in the book and i want to say that um one thing i do want to mention that and i think you said one of the key things is they had they in their in their thinking in their communication they really expounded on what the president was talking about and i think in in the period time period of david walker he was dealing with jefferson i mean not, yeah was it <laughs> yes he was dealing with jefferson and how jefferson would talk of the contradictions in what jefferson talked about in terms of humanity but you know yeah, uh, the Declaration of Independence by the Founding Fathers. We all these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. All uh, people has the right to life, liber- liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Right? Actually, mm-hmm. black nationalists would say, "Well, this is very hypocritical because black people uh, cannot uh, uh, pursue uh, their own." Happiness, right? They are constantly uh, being racially profiled. You know, institutionalized violence against black people, police officers shooting uh, mm. uh, black people without, you know, uh, thinking uh, uh, about uh, their behavior. Such atrocities. I think that was one of the reasons or one of the impetus for the Black Lives. Uh, uh, matter movement to say that you know all lives uh, should matter all lives are equal but because black lives are unlivable and ungrievable uh, so um, a police officer can shoot uh, black people at a whim and and really David Walker actually gives us a blueprint in terms of you know in terms of dealing with the president and what they say and you know, how they interact with the various communities. And I want to say, you know, I ain't bashing Trump, and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm diplomatic right now. But in terms of Trump, he made a comment that, hey, we said we don't have enough bullets. We got bullets all out there. And now you have, you know, black black on black crime. You have a high number of shootings going on. But these are the things, these are the constructs back then. You're dealing with the worst and the message of the president. And I want to say, Dave Walker, in his message, he even quotes um, 
Mr. Jeff Jefferson comparing our miserable fathers with learned philosophers of Greece. He says, yet now within the stand, with understanding these and other discouraging circumstances among the Romans, their slaves were often their rarest artists. They excelled too in science in so much as to be usually employed as tutors to their master's children. And he just goes on to just talk about, you know, Jefferson and the, the overall hypocrisy. And he talks about he breaks down the notes of Virginia. So when you look at David, David Walker, I think is is probably one of the most powerful statements uh, in the earliest times, uh, you know, and I think that's a real good part in terms of understanding political thought and slavery yes, and yes. its discontents. It's like David Walker, for example, uh, asked the question, are we men? I ask you, mm-hmm. oh, my brethren, are we men? Mm-hmm. Did our creator make us to be slaves to dust and ashes like ourselves? Are they not dying worms as well as we? Have they not to make their appearance before the tribunal of heaven to answer for the deeds done in the body as well as we? Have we any other master but Jesus Christ alone? Is he not their master as well as ours? What Mm. right then have we to obey and call any other master but himself? Oh, we should be so submissive to a gang of men whom we cannot tell whether they are as good as ourselves or not. I never could conceive. However, this is shut up with the Lord, and we cannot precisely tell, but I declare we judge men by their works. Oh, that's deep. Eh? Oh, my God. Oh, God, this is deep. <laughs> I know I can labor oh. labor on oh, this, David oh. Walker. Uh, I had to come back to oh. that because I could labor on David Walker again. This is this is a great article. It's our wretchedness in consequence of slavery. Yes, it's a, and a beautiful it's piece within the David Walker appeal. Um, and he does. He also does our wretchedness in consequence of. I, I can't remember the other one, but it's all in David Walker appeal. And so we, again, we are dealing with black political thought. We're not dealing with the actual history per se, because as you know, on Doc Power Hour, we do not start our history in slavery. We start our history in empowerment, and that's within the civilizations of Africa. So I just want our listening audience to not get it confused in terms of black political thought and dealing with the slavery and its dis- uh, discontent because we as a people understand that we're mighty people that persevered in math, science, and the arts, and you know, we built great empires. We were pioneers of agriculture and tools and metals, and so, um. I just wanted you to segue because we're doing a heavy conversation on slavery and its discontents. But in terms of really dealing with the political thought from David Walker to Frederick J- Douglass, and now we're moving on to Reconstruction. And you kind of take us on a jet because Reconstruction is one of those sensitive areas because, you know, 
you don't understand the path because there's not today we have a blueprint you know and we got to understand back then there was not a blueprint you know and you were trying to it's like you know you 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 come into you come to a, a place and they're playing monopoly and everybody's they've been playing for two hours and then you get there and say okay you know well i want to join in but now you're joining in and everywhere you go, you know, everywhere you're landing, you know, people are charging you, you know, you can never rise up. You can never build your wealth. And even when you try to build your wealth, it can be easily taken from you. Yes, yes. And so and just take us on that journey, because I know at that particular during Reconstruction, we understood slavery and we didn't we knew African people and slaves enslaved Africans knew that that's not where they wanted to go and so they understood they built these little these little areas these little parts of town they actually separated themselves you know because they understood the brutality of white men yes yes and actually the reconstruction period actually uh, the 13th amendment to the American constitution brought an end to slavery legally so uh, that was the reconstruction period mm-hmm. right? and during that period uh, the freed uh, the freedmen bureau did right. uh, you know help out like you know uh, um supporting black people in terms of education because mm. during slavery if you were caught learning to read and write. It was a criminal mm-hmm. offense, right? So the, uh, during Reconstruction people, a uh, Reconstruction period, uh, 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 the Freedmen Bureau did uh, help in uh, trying to uh, set up schools like Howard University and mm-hmm. Tuskegee and those universities to aid in black progress. And then you had the 14th Amendment to the Constitution that gave us, uh, uh, black people a certain... Uh, process Mm -hmm. and then the 15th amendment to the constitution gave black men the right to vote Mm -hmm. but of course uh, when black men got the right to vote because uh, the constitution say that no one can deprive uh, uh, anyone to vote uh, uh, even though they were slaves uh, states, the southern states of course implemented uh, barriers to prevent right, black men right. from the, both the voting taxes, the like tax, yeah, the poll tax, tax the, the literacy, literacy test, test, the grandfather clause, uh-huh. and when this failed, of course the KKK uh, mm. was there to uh, uh, to uh, police uh, black people. So you have the 13th, the 14th, and the 15th Amendment. We call these Reconstruction Amendment. Mm-hmm. Uh, but soon after uh, the 15th Amendment, uh, something came into place and Reconstruction ended, mm-hmm. and you add the Jim Crow South. Right. And I'm it's doing a very fast history. Right, right. You know, we can't. Uh, yeah, but uh, that's about it. And then you've got Plessy versus Ferguson, the landmark case that created separate but equal, mm-hmm. even though uh, Plessy looked as white as any white person in America, and he could have afforded to uh, buy a train to be in the white's uh, uh, cabin because he had just a drop of uh, black blood. He was removed mm-hmm. and taken to the uh, black cabin. That was mm-hmm. the impetus uh, mm-hmm. for the uh, uh, Pessy forces Ferguson uh, landmark case which created separate but equal the Jim Crow South of course. Eh? Yeah. So you know can, can you expound upon the you had W.E.B. Du Bois yes. in the reconstruction and then you have one of my favorites is 
Booker T. Washington. Oh, was, yes. <laughs> uh, and, you know, and in the midst of that, you do have Thomas Fortune. And, and Thomas Fortune, Fortune, excuse me, he was, you know, he dealt a lot with mixed race. Yes, yes. And, and, and the mixed race population and, you know, how is that accepted and, you know, and he actually went back on Frederick Douglass to say, was that a strategy or was he, you know, because nobody ever talked about his his previous his first wife. But when he engaged with the white woman, everybody was talking about that. But I don't think he goes into it that much in this section for Reconstruction, but that was very much a part of it. But he deals more with political independence of the Negro, and that was something that he had to expound on the mixed race. Yes, and black uh, people are needed uh, political independence because uh, without the right to vote, nothing matters, right? Political rights uh, were important. But going back to W.E.B. Du Bois, I think uh, one cannot write a section on uh, reconstruction without uh, 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 writing uh, uh, W.E.B. Du Bois of the Dawn of Freedom, right? Uh, right. He is most uh, pronounced statement, uh, the problem of the 20th century is the problem of the colored line. This, I think this is on page 1660. Mm-hmm. 68. Sorry. 68, sorry. Yes, and the problem of the colored line. And I think I, uh, we can ask the question uh, whether uh, the colored line here in the 21st century, whether the colored line, the racial divide, is still uh, present today, right? Yeah, yeah. I, what do you think? Is I think it is actually. It comes in a different ways, right? Like uh, uh, the prison system, uh, black ghettos and su- super ghettos. Mm-hmm. I think uh, you know. Uh, and again, and, and we're going to jump into that. A lot of times, when you say the, when you deal with the color line and political thought, of course, you're dealing with justice, um, economics, and social issues, and. That's one of the things that can reverse all the all the accomplishments all the accomplishments you made in civil rights and um, reconstruction, you know, which was reversed. But all those accomplishments got, you know, reversed because of mass incarceration. Yes, but that's yes. going to come up. So in terms of, you know, going into going in and coming out of this age of colorblindness and this mass incar, you know, this mass incarceration incarceration you're right there's still i would say there's still much is a color line when you when you bring the justice systems into play and and getting justice and the policing of our system and how does that work i think those are things that have transferred from one period for one particular time and has transferred into today so when we go back the first question when we talked about um, what's relevant today, those are the things that we will pull out and say that justice that was never received then, we're still having problems receiving now, and it's probably because of that color line. You have yeah. so many different, for lack of a better word, you have so many different cases where, you know, you're not giving the same preference in terms of sentencing. And you have some that are, you know, for the same crime, you know, there's harsher sentence, harsher punishment, yes, yes. and it's, and I think that's one of the biggest tragedies that we're dealing with that has come from period to period, and it's that 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 primary system, that dominant system, that Anglo-Saxon system, that 
in order to stay in power, they have to keep that system alive. Yes. Um, and I often, oftentimes quote Ronald Reagan, I, you know, because he said every day is a fight for freedom and liberation. Him in a privileged, if him in a privileged class can make that comment, what are we doing as blacks to say, hey, he's making that comment. So we have got to be that more dedicated to our freedom and liberation each and every day, yes. each and every minute of the day. If yes. he's doing it every day, we got to do it each and every minute yes. because they are the dominant class. So. Every minute of the minute. <laughs> 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 but, yeah, that's a good um, so yeah, and so I uh, and I talk a, a bit too. Of, and you brought up Booker T. Washington, and most people uh, think of him as the conservative side of uh, uh, the black struggle mm-hmm. because of his Atlanta Compromise. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, he, and uh, uh, I teach the uh, soul of black folk. Uh, uh-huh. W.E.B. Du Bois, and there is a chapter on, in the book on Mr. Booker T. Washington, and uh, Du Bois uh, uh, is very critical of his uh, idea to push forward industrial education for black people, mm-hmm. because uh, in Du Bois's mind, blacks should should be uh, reading Greek and Latin and reading all the philosophers and from Plato. Mm-hmm. onward and so on, right? Yeah. And so uh, Booker T. Washington is interested in the sense in this article though uh, uh, I think he talks about uh, blacks uh, being better off in the south mm-hmm. than in the north. And exactly. He, yes. And he was very uh, concerned that uh, black people from the north coming to the south and agitating uh, black southerners and putting ideas in their heads but uh, so yeah, he's an interesting scholar. Uh, very complicated. And, and, and it's interesting that towards the end of his life, W.E.B. Du Bois' life, he understood, he went into Pan-Africanism, and yes, he yes. understood that, you know, his, you know, he was lead, he could have been leading, the, misdirecting the people. Because at the end of the life, he started understanding what Marcus Garvey was trying to say, what Booker T. Washington was trying to say, yes, and yes. how this system, no matter what you acquire, they're still not going to tr- give you that equality that we so deserve that's under the Constitution, that's under the Declaration of Independence. Yes, so, yes. Um, but those are, you know, yeah. if you get a, tr- if you, especially, especially as we navigate, you know, um, through the book again, I'm on with Dr. Sharon Pinder, and we're dealing with the book um, Black Political Thought, and we are dealing with reconstruction. I have her here, so I'm actually <laughs> taking her through like almost the whole book <laughs> since she's here. Um, yes, yeah, she has come to Dallas Fort Worth from uh, California State University, uh, Chico, and so. Um, I'm actually going to let her take a break and I'm going to play, you know, a little bit of, uh, oh, I'm going to actually take a break and we're going to play a little bit, some music for you. Maybe some, um, let me give you some more news so you can make sure you know what's going on in the news right now. Global stock markets and oil prices are falling in reaction to China announcing sharp increases in the number of people infected with a new coronavirus. Many Asian markets, including China's, were closed today for Lunar New Year holidays, while Australia was closed for 
Australia Day. Major European markets all fell more than 2%, and signs are pointing to a substantial drop when Wall Street markets open. A book from former National Security Advisor John Bolton appears to undercut a key defense argument at U.S. President Donald Trump's impeachment trial. In The Room Where It Happened, a White House memoir, Bolton writes Trump told him he wanted to withhold hundreds of millions of dollars in security aid from Ukraine until it helped him with politically charged investigations, including into Democratic rival Joe Biden. Trump's legal team has repeatedly insisted he never tied aid to investigations he wanted into Biden and his son. A nighttime rocket attack on the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad injured at least one embassy personnel member, staffers there said Monday. The two staff members did not specify the injured person's nationality or the severity of their wounds. They said the rocket slammed into a restaurant inside the embassy compound. Rugged terrain is complicating efforts to recover the victims of a helicopter crash outside Los Angeles yesterday that killed nine people, including NBA legend Kobe Bryant and his 13-year-old daughter. The Los Angeles County Medical Examiner says it will likely take at least a couple of days to complete that task before formal identifications can be made. The impact scattered debris over an area the size of a football field. With news from around the world, I'm Sylvia Ashbullard.
With news from around the world, I'm Sylvia Ash-Bullard. Global stock markets and oil prices are falling in reaction to China announcing sharp increases in the number of people infected with a new coronavirus. Many Asian markets, including China's, were closed today for Lunar New Year holidays, while Australia was closed for Australia Day. Major European markets all fell more than 2%, and signs are pointing to a substantial drop when Wall Street markets open. A book from former National Security Advisor John Bolton appears to undercut a key defense argument at U.S. President Donald Trump's impeachment trial. In The Room Where It Happened, a White House memoir, Bolton writes Trump told him he wanted to withhold hundreds of millions of dollars in security aid from Ukraine until it helped him with politically charged investigations, including into Democratic rival Joe Biden. Trump's legal team has repeatedly insisted he never tied aid to investigations he wanted into Biden and his son. A nighttime rocket attack on the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad injured at least one embassy personnel member. Staffers there said Monday. The two staff members did not specify the injured person's nationality or the severity of their wounds. They said the rocket slammed into a restaurant inside the embassy compound. Rugged terrain is complicating efforts to recover the victims of a helicopter crash outside Los Angeles yesterday that killed nine people, including NBA legend Kobe Bryant and his 13-year-old daughter. The Los Angeles County Medical Examiner says it will likely take at least a couple of days to complete that task before formal identifications can be made. The impact scattered debris over an area the size of a football field. With news from around the world, I'm Sylvia Ash Bullard. Hi, I'm Attorney Bobby Edmonds with your legal tip for the week. Today we will talk about power of attorney. Power of attorney is a document whereby you, as a living individual, gives another living individual the opportunity to take care of your personal affairs if you become ill or if you become incapacitated. It gives them power to act in your stead. Therefore, everybody the age of 18 years old or older should execute a power of attorney. It will save you a lot of grief when you are sick, and you will be sure that your property is properly managed. If you need a power of attorney, contact me at 817-332-6501 or email me at goodverdict at MSN or visit my website, www.goodverdict.com. Have a wonderful day. You are back on Doc Power Hour. We have an exciting show this evening with Dr. Sharon Sharon. I'm sorry, I always. That's okay. I mean, it can go in so many directions, but it's, it's Dr. Sherrod Kinder. And so, again, we're talking about Black Political Thought. It is an um, excellent book from David Walker to the present. And it's just, it's just uh, uh, the writings and discourses central to the Black Political Thought and African American pol- uh, politics, compil- excuse me, compiling a unique 
Anthropology of Speeches and Articles Over 150 Years of African American History. And again, this is Black Political Thought. It's providing an in-depth explanation and critical analysis of topics such as slavery, reconstruction, race and racism, black nationalism and black feminism from a range of perspectives. And the students that are out there listening, we have students you know, all over. And then we have community leaders in, in Dallas, Fort Worth, and all over the nation that are in a time and in a period of thinking, how do we engage this government? What do we demand? What do we need to be constantly critically thinking about? How far have we come? Um, we're still looking for those things that are important and paramount to us. We're still looking for justice, rights, law, and power. All these issues are going to come up uh, again in this election. How you know? I, I I look at I look at all this legislation that was related to uh, marijuana and how many young people have lost their lives just in the drug battle itself. And now we're coming where you know it's legalized, but you have people that are doing some serious time behind marijuana that has become a legalized. Um, entity. So now we have to really go back and how do we free those people that have been incarcerated and then give them the education. So it is like a domino effect that we're going we're going in circles when we need to be going straight line, you know, in terms of really rebuilding our communities and not going back into whence we came, you know, uh, liberation. Uh, I always quote this, you know. Freedom and liberation is a constant, constant fight. Dr. Pinder, <laughs> welcome back to Doc Power Hour. I am so happy that you came all the way from California State University because to talk about this topic is such an important topic. You are the editor of the book. In our first hour, we talked about slavery and discontent. We talked about the wretchedness and the consequences of slavery. We talked about David Walker, and we also talked about what to the slave is the 4th of July, Frederick Douglass, and all these different essays that are compiled within the black political thought is, I said we, we have it on academia, but we need to really reach out to our communities, our leadership community, because they have got to be articulate on these different essays that are that are really focused on study in academia. So I'm happy that we have an audience from students to community leaders that can really take this message forward so we don't repeat our past. Did I? That's <laughs> very good. <laughs> um, and where we, you know, we're, we're at, a, 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 again, after Reconstruction, we talked a little bit about um, Booker T. Washington and, we're going heading into when we deal with black political thought, we're heading to black nationalism and in black nationalism, um, we have, they cover essay, the true solution of the Negro problem and, um, towards a black liberation by Stokely Carmichael. And then the true solution of the Negro problem by Marcus Garvey. And also in that section, we have the vindication of the capacity of the Negro race for self-government and civilized progress. By James Theodore Holly. Can you tell us a little bit about black nationalism and yeah. what we're trying to communicate? Yes, actually, um, uh, black nationalism has to do with the struggle uh, to 
uh, claim and safeguard and expand uh, the rights for uh, blacks and all humanity. And it is tied to, uh, according to Babe uh, Karmbe, it's tied to uh, black cosmopolitanism. Uh, the thing about black nationalism, I think it's extremely important in the sense that um, after Reconstruction, uh, blacks continue to be treated as second-class citizens. And the idea uh, of black nationalism was for black people to go back to Africa uh, because that's the only how blacks uh, can be uh, a complete uh, being. Uh, to go uh, back to Africa. So you have these uh, writers um, like Holly and uh, Stokey uh, Carmichael and Marcus Garfi. Um, Holly uh, uh, focus on Haiti. Mm-hmm. And uh, as we know, Haiti was the first uh, black republic in the uh, Western Hemisphere. And uh, Mark. Because Garfi is uh, very interested in the sense that he uh, pushed for pan-Africanism, which, of course, is a part of uh, uh, black nationalism. According to Stokey Carmichael, for example, uh, equality must be achieved uh, by any means uh, necessary. Uh, In order to achieve equality for uh, black people, you have got to... uh, do whatever it takes uh, to achieve equality. And um, in this uh, section on uh, black nationalism in the book itself, mm-hmm. I, uh, quoted, uh, uh, I quoted uh, this important, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, the Church of Christ Reverend Jeremy Wright, Oh, okay, yeah. Okay. Yes, and uh, you remember his mm. angry outburst uh, in opposition uh, to racism. Mm, yes. And he's, um, uh, he made the comment, God damn America. Yes, yes. yes. Uh, so I, I said, uh, when a Reverend Wright shout from the pulpit, God damn America, he criticizes uh, the institutionalized violence and the criminal justice system that is too often excessively punitive and destructive in the uh, black uh, community. Uh, he is uh, kin to uh, the other black nationalists in the book, Stokey Carmichael, Marcus Garfi, and James Theodore Holly. Okay. The important point though, about reverence, right, uh, we need to uh, make this extremely clear that he is no different from the fathers of black nationalism and pan-Africanism. His loyalty is not to American people, but to America's promise in the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. For Reverend Wright, America has not lived up to this promise because of his discriminatory treatment of blacks, other racialized ethnic groups such as First Nations peoples, Mexicans, Muslim, and Haitian in the United States, women, sexual minority, senior citizens, the poor, the disabled, which uh, constitute in Reverend Wright's word a moral 
atrocity warrant in God's damnation. And so, of course, uh, I make the point to say Reverend Wright holds nothing back about race and racism. Mm -hmm. And so uh, then... Now, what section did you cover that in? uh, This is uh, the introduction of the book. Okay. uh, Yes. This is on page... Uh, seven. Okay. Well, okay. Yes. When they go over the different sections, yes. you talk about that. Okay. Yes. And that's you know that's actually an introduction um, for those that are listening that breaks down the different chapters in within the book and it's right under black nationalism that they talk about that she's talking about Reverend Wright and how he his shout from the poor uh, pulpit, goddamn America! Wow, yeah. that's powerful. That's powerful. Um, I, I do want to say that. Uh, we have Stokely Carmichael, and you know, I, we just got off the heels of Dr. Martin Luther King, and a lot of people say Dr. Martin Luther King wasn't Pan Africanist. He wasn't a Pan African, a Pan Africanist at at all. But I think in one of his earliest speeches, I always talk about this. He 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 did a speech on the birth of a new nation, and he was talking about Kwame Nkrumah, and he was on that same. Uh, um, in that same spirit of Marcus Garvey if they don't like your talent or your resources he said you have other options and he was talking about Kwame Nkrumah and the Gold Coast and this new nation and he was being president of that new nation and what we can do in terms of building those relationships and taking some of our resources there if United States don't want to give us that equality there is another nation that we can go to and so I think that was kind of um, he was in along the lines of Marcus Garvey. Marcus Garvey was like, you know, we don't want none of it. <laughs> we, you know, it. You know, Dr. Martin Luther King. Well, he was more of an if, and you know, whereas Marcus Garvey, there's no room. They've already proven that they're not going to give that equality, and that is a kind of message throughout the book is dealing with equality from from period to period from topic to topic is how do we get that equality we have you know a lot of these writers have accepted are okay with their blackness in our actuality nobody is in black political thought none of these are really fighting about i don't really want to i am dealing with inferiority they're not they're dealing with how can we get justice equality how, what do we need to do? Um, so, um, Black National, of course, uh, Stokely Carmichael, the new Kwame Ture, um, one of my heroes for a short period of time. He married Miriam Makeba from South Africa. Yes, so, look, yes, Kwame Ture. Yes. <laughs> so, um, again, that's that's part three, Black Nationalism. Um, th- that's the section. You know, these are all great sections yes. to really deal with. Especially as we start going to Black History Month and then we're going into the election. This is probably one of those great books to have a conversation to, you know, see if your students can get this book and, you know, bring it in. Use this as a resource to do your essay. I talked to my son and told him, make sure you're listening because you're in those classes now where you can use some of these essays and kind of, you know, garnish your thinking and how you should move forward. So, um, Again, thank you for really going over black nationalism. What is Babacar Mbaye? Yes, Yes, he wrote the um, the introduction. introduction. And so, what did he what did he expound upon in black nationalism? What was his position? 
Okay, actually, he wrote the introduction to black nationalism by reading the three authors, uh, uh-huh. Marcus Garfield and uh, 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 Stokey uh, Carmichael and uh, oh. James Theodore Holly, and he kind of uh, connect uh, uh, black nationalism uh, to uh, pan-Africanism, mm-hmm. and he explained uh, black nationalism as a theory founded on the sheer struggle against historical forces uh, that have prevented many black communities from establishing either a collective entity such as a country, uh, meta nation, or another geographical, political, and economic uh, entity uh, for themselves. Uh, so uh, uh, he takes from the three authors uh, to make the point that all three authors uh, claim uh, to, uh, to uh, secure uh, the civil rights of uh, not just black people, uh, but all black people in the uh, black or African diaspora. Okay. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm familiar as much as with James Theodore Holly, the quintessential cosmopolitan, so I will be looking forward in reading that section. Um, as you know, a lot of us are familiar with Stokely Mark. Uh, Stokely Carmichael because of SNCC he was a leader and one of the founders for SNCC um, but yes, yes. yes I do want of course and we know Marcus Garvey and self-determination p- powerful um, and he deals with a lot of the African renaissance and you know moving forward and coming into new age I mean a lot of people deal with him ra- in terms of radicalism in the western world but he had you know he was looking for economic independence so yes Yes, and actually, uh, uh, Holly uh, focused on Haiti, and uh-huh. uh, in this section, he talks a lot, lot about um, uh, Haiti as the first black republic uh, uh, in a republic in uh, the Western Hemisphere. Uh, yeah. Sorry, uh, and um, a, a lot of times, you know. We we really don't understand how these have really shaped the political forces within the United States. Because had not uh, Tucson Overture mm-hmm. and all the things that went on in Haiti and Santo Domingo, we would not have really moved on towards emancipation. It was those things that said, hey, we have to really analyze this resistance. Um and how we move forward, and it was uh, Haiti. Had not had Haiti not done what it was doing, you know, French would have ex- exhibited some more control in the United States. So a lot of people, not only Africans, enslaved Africans, but the British colony, they owe a lot to what Toussaint Louverture. I wouldn't be surprised if they were <laughs> financing that. <laughs> because they were able to get what the Louisiana per- the Louisiana Purchase for little or nothing, because of all the the wars and the battles that Haiti was taking them through, they were pulling in all the resources, basically depleting all the French resources, and so they had to give up territory. Yeah, and uh. actually, all these article of vindication 
of the capacity of the Negro race for self-government and civilized progress. Mm -hmm. I, I use in Haiti as an example to show that black people can govern themselves. Right. Yes. Exactly. Yes. So yeah, I think it's article. But don't uh, you think today, you know, and that's one of those, again, we're dealing with, you know, then and now. And it really takes us to get involved in international law. Because at some point, do you think that Haiti could be still punished for, you know, really pushing the liberation, the end of slavery? Um, and just kind of really move resources, international resources into Haiti because there is a you know uh, a punishment there I I believe there there it's a it's a constant you know uh, it's it's we have a stain and a blemish on the actual slavery and then there is that other stain and blemish blemish for fighting for liberation and freedom and so you know and I think that again when we deal with black political thought, if we understand the historical um, significance of certain movements, I think that it shaped what we need to demand for today in terms of our international politics and how we help countries that, you know, that are people that are our kinship. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I tell you, we are just like an earlier stop. I mean, <laughs> they were just like an earlier stop, but there's kinship within those different islands. Yes, so. and when I think... All the arguments about uh, uh, equality and liberty, it's not just for black people in America, but all black people in the African diaspora. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think they, I, I want to say they also talked about, did they talk about Mary Prince in here? Uh, yes. Okay, because I, I, I'm not sure. I, I thought I might have read it somewhere. Um, again, fighting for liberation, yes. you know, dealing with Britain and how the Caribbean islands and, you know, how do we get our freedom? How do women get their freedom? You know, dealing with the women, dealing with the children, dealing with the family. That was Mary Prince. Yes. Uh, and so it, uh, I, I, I think since you're talking about women and, uh, and freedom, I think uh, the section on feminism and difference is another uh, uh-huh. powerful uh, section. Okay. Oh, yeah. Oh, no. Actually, we I skipped race and racism. Sorry, but because you talked about oh yeah uh, yeah <laughs> gender <laughs> and patriarchy. Uh, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. I, that's okay. Yeah. I that's okay. We're gonna, gonna get there. Uh, you know. Skip race and racism. Race and racism yeah. is. You know, I, I looked at that in the beginning and how they kind of really dis- define race and racism because it's kind of unclear. The lines are unclear of how they define it, yes. what racism is and what race, what race is. is. And I think as we continue, it's important to continue to visit what it is because we get our interpretation, our definition continue to change from book to book. Yes, you know, yes. um, how so how are they defining Yes, actually, an, uh, a genealogical uh, count of race, actually, in the United States, at the very beginning, starting with slavery, our race was seen as biological, mm-hmm. right? And so, of course, this was used to uh, 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 create the idea that blacks are inferior through scientific racism. But today, uh, if you say race is biological, people think you're nuts, Mm -hmm. right? Everybody now argues that race is a social concept, Mm -hmm. right? But then 
even though race is a social concept, how do you know that you're black? How do you know that you're Chinese? How do you know that you're white, right? Uh, for black people, uh, there are these physical markers that are socially constructed mm -hmm. that tells you that you're black mm -hmm. or what have you. I, I like to think of race, though, in the Fanonian sense of the word as epidermatized. It's on the skin. It's uh, on the surface, uh, right? You right, right, yeah. right. That's the way I like to think about it, yeah. And, and, and there's no hiding it. Yes, there's no, uh, yes, it's there in your face. It's, it's visible. You can't hide it. I like that. You can't hide it. It's epidermatized. It's on the skin. And that's it, amazing that you said it because yeah. I remember... Um, Studying abroad at the um, long time ago at the University of West Indies down in Kingston, Jamaica, ah. and when you, um, I came back and sat on a panel, and at that particular time it was apartheid that was going on. So as African Americans and Germans had their issues, and so as African Americans we weren't doing a lot of traveling at that particular time, you know, into different universities. Lisa was going into Europe, and we came back. And I remember this young guy saying, you know, I have the same problems because because um, of my sexual preference. I said, I said, I apologize, but as long as you don't elicit certain behaviors, nobody's going to know. There is nothing I can do about my skin. So at the, <laughs> there, there, it is what it is, and and I, and I am and I'm proud of it, but. That fight is not this platform because, like you said, it's on the surface. Yes. It's there. It's in your face. Oh People could see it. You know, you, nobody's going to see what your your energy unless you tell them. Uh, from, unless you go and you really want to express that. Right. Yes, but, yes. I, you know, yes. the Germans have seen me come. Yes. You know, they, yes, <laughs> sure, sure. at that particular time, yes. you know, they, they say you can't, you know, I wanted to go to Africa. They say you can't go to Africa and yeah. all this stuff. So, you know, you know, Jamaica was one of those yes. places that I was able to travel, you know, yeah. in the, it was weird because it was actually the 90s. <laughs> so you think at that particular time you don't have – uh, those issues, but now is everybody's traveling, you know. But again, those are political things that have yes. changed over time, mm -hmm. and because of those political things, because of those things, we deal with apartheid. Uh, people don't know it was actually hindering certain types of travel, which definitely. <laughs> and so, you know, me trying to go to where I want to go, I couldn't do it. Yes. Uh, and so, those are those political things that we have to, uh, you know, put on the forefront. Okay, uh, race as racism, yes. it is, um, I think you co covered it a lot uh, um, the, with the explosion of black print media um, at the end of the century allowed dissemination of black political thought that offered analysis of racial oppression, segregation, and diminishing rights and proposed programs for progress. Yes. And that's what I'm saying, programs for progress. And race regeneration. They had journals and newspaper, magazine, manifestos, pam excuse me, pamphlets, and periodicals that were packed with careful examination of thoughtful meditation and mediations on the benefit, polemics, polemics of race and racism. Yes. So um, again, this is we're probably going to have to have a part two. 
I'm probably oh. going to have to call you and talk about this or call and talk to somebody about race and racism. We got to look at this as, as uh, probably as an in, uh, uh, introduction with ongoing conversation as yes. we close to. We went over, you know, for the listening audience, and if you're just now tuning in, I am with Dr. Sharon Pinder. And she is from Colorado. She's a political science professor at Colorado. Excuse me. I want to say Colorado at California State University in Chico. Um, and we're, we're we're probably coming to a close in a minute. But I do really want to go into the past and present and future issues yes. and kind of understand. Um, the introduction was read, uh, created by Erica F. Cooper. And basically in her introduction or her discussion of the past, present, future issues. Um, what was what was she trying to get across in this section? Yeah, actually, um, uh, uh, when we think about the past is- issues, right, uh, mm-hmm. where we talk about slavery as mm-hmm. a past issue, uh, but uh, slavery is not just uh, slavery, but it's con- uh, is connected to uh, the system of whiteness. Mm-hmm. So, yes, uh, whiteness in the past continues in the present and will continue in the future, whiteness as the norm, right? And so uh, uh, in order uh, uh, for uh, blacks uh, to uh, gain some kind of equality with white people, mm-hmm. uh, whiteness as the norm would have to be denormalized, right? Right, yes. right. And so uh, uh, I have written somewhere in a book that, uh, about how to denormalize whiteness. Uh-huh. Yeah, uh, it's very uh, tricky because, you know, we can't make whiteness anxious. When uh-huh. whiteness gets anxious, you end up with a president like Donald Trump. Uh-huh. You end up with Jim Crow South. You end up with uh, the Chinese Exclusion Act. You end up with the Japanese internment camp. You end up with Arizona 1070, which is in right now uh-huh. uh, so we've got to be careful not to make whiteness anxious right exactly yes. I like how you put that I think it's an essay you did back when you were dealing with the problematics for race politics in the United yes, States yes, yes, yes. and that was the one that ran uh, one the Newberry yes. Scholarly Seminar or was a part of the Newberry Scholarly Seminar in African American yes. literature yes thank you yeah and so uh, uh, um, Cooper uh, she looked at these three authors, um, Cheryl High Harris, she wrote an article on whiteness as property, and uh, Harris takes from W.E.B. Du Bois, uh, Du Bois's uh, uh, in Black Reconstruction on the public and psychological wages, mm-hmm. which is characteristic of whiteness, and so. Uh, uh, Harris kind of reformulated to call it the property right in whiteness because all white people, whether they are poor or not, have this white skin privilege. Mm-hmm, uh, exactly. That, yes, that position them above uh, non-white, uh, non-white uh, people. Yes. And, uh, one of the article, uh, and uh, I think Cooper to try to show our race. Uh, is different from racism right? mm-hmm, exactly. because of racism uh, racism creates these kind of racialized groups like African American Chinese Americans mm-hmm. and First Nations Americans and so on right these racialized groups so that uh, 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 they can be uh, discriminated against 
Yeah, Cheryl, actually, she goes on to expound and argue that racism became the means of promoting a system of class exploitation, Mm -hmm. socially constructed distinction on the basis of this concept of racial difference were used to divide the working class while protecting and perpetuating this ideology as both natural and legitimate. Yes, yes. And so um, the uh, part that's very uh, fascinating, too, is uh, how, the, how the working class was formed in the United States. When the Irish uh, came to the United States, the Irish weren't considered white. Uh, but, of course, uh, the Irish took on whiteness in order to affiliate themselves with white people and discriminate against black people. Uh, actually, the American working class at the beginning were even ready to take lower wages so as to hold on to their property rights in whiteness. Yes, yeah, so I think uh, Cooper uh, uh, did a very good job to uh, uh, allow us to think about um, uh, past, present, and future issues by drawing on Cheryl I. Iris Whiteness as property, uh, 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 Barbara Fields, um, whiteness, racism, and identity. Because Barbara Fields, for example, draw on the idea that uh, when white immigrants uh, arrive in the United States, instantaneously they take on whiteness. Right? Exactly. Yeah. But black people, uh, whether you were born in America or not, you're always seen as though you're mm-hmm. an immigrant. You just came to the United States, right? And uh, blacks are, as soon as blacks arrive in the United States, they're naturalized into their blackness. Uh, right. They can be racially profiled and uh, treated like second-class citizens and Deep, uh, deny job opportunities and those kinds of things. Right, and, and you know, and that's today, still today. And yes, previously, yes. they, you know, in the past, it was all it was free blacks and enslaved blacks. But at the end of the day, you still had that same experience in yes. terms of your blackness and your inequality. So, yes, yes. yes. and Barbara Fields explores the delicate relationship between knowledge and language to discriminate. What is worth knowing um, directly connected to the basic tenets of white supremacy? Yes. Yeah. So, um, wow. It's the past, the present, and the future. Yeah. Again, I'm with Dr. Pinder from California State University, professor of political science. And we are we are going through the book Black Political Thought, a, a, a very fascinating read for academia and the community. For community leaders, um, these are very important essays um, that have been compiled in the book Black Political Thought. And we, you know, I encourage every group, every organization to really get this book and really focus on this book and join in the dialogue and discussion, especially if you're leading a group of people um, into this next decade, if you're over an organization into the next decade and trying to build that, uh, decrease that knowledge gap and so everybody can really mobilize together in terms of getting political power um i don't know have you have you ever read dr claude anderson um, dr claude no. uh, uh yeah i don't think so yeah he he that's what his main thing is to focus on dealing with politics and a lot of times we have our position of what we want, but we can't mobilize because it becomes economic. So that that 
politics and that economics work hand in hand. Yes, yes. Um, and then we have, okay, uh, one of my Kathleen, we can't leave without dealing with Kathleen Cleaver. She is actually identified on the cover of the books along with, oh, we didn't get a chance to talk about Ida B. Wells and the Lynch Laws. And what's oh, it's too, it's so rich this book yeah it's it's uh, oh my god you, you got like 10 hours for yeah i'm day. telling you mm-hmm. um i think we totally missed a section with ida b wells stokely Carmar, frederick douglas um booker t washington now we got kathleen cleaver she's on the cover um very diamond fighter in the fight for liberation and freedom and a part of the black panther party um and in this book, she deconstructs the ideological impact of white supremacy on the psyche of white people. She reveals how um, how among white pe- whites, regardless of their social economic sta- status, is cultivated through their social interaction interaction to promote racism. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of um, the position that she is looking at when she writes about the past and the present and the future. In terms of really dealing with this racism to protect itself, and you know, and that's what racism is doing is protecting itself, itself, and it's revealed and comparing how the working class during the 19th century and the present day responded to the fears associated with capitalism. Cleaver believed that the past masculinity operated as a coping mechanism to manage the dissonance associated with wage dependency. As white workers actively sought to define the term worker, worker, it, its meaning incorporated masculinity and whiteness. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, Kathleen is pr- probably one of your most, you know, powerful thinkers of our time yes. that's dealing with how you navigate the, the future. How, how do you look ahead? How do you do it collectively? Yes. And collectively, these three entities remind us that racial domination will remain as long as citizens endorse and embrace these oppressive language and meanings cultivated from it. So, um, so in dealing with the past, the present, and the future, you have got to work collectively and understand where we need to go. Um, I think this is, you know, we did a pretty good overview of this book. <laughs> This is an excellent, you know, I had her in. I think she was just, you know, I don't know if we would have made it through all the book, but since she, I had her in the office, I really wanted to, you know, make use of her time coming up here, all the way here from California and, you know, dealing with what, everything that's going on out in California. I just, I really appreciate her coming in, talking about this book, talking about the writers in this book, and just kind of really help putting it together and dealing with the editing. The um, Black Political Thought is a book from Cambridge University Press. And it is, this volume is important to the text for those interested in the philosophy and history of black political thought. Um, um, Morehouse College, they said, you know, Andrew Douglas from Morehouse College said this valuable new collection guides readers through the several essential works in African-American political thought, combining classical writings from a range of contemporary commentaries. This volume shows how our understanding of the modern political world, world is woefully misguided without thoughtful and critical attention to various modes of racial inequality. 
And it's so it's so misguided because of what's going. I mean, look at what's going on. How misguided is it? We're with all the stuff going on. We're focused on the impeachment. You know, that's a part of the, that's a big political distraction. And we all we know what the end results are going to be when it's all said and done. Um, what else is going on? The the impeachment and using giving somebody resources, a country, a nation resources, if you can get what you want out of the deal. And so that's hand in hand. That's really, in a sense, what the impeachment is going. But while the, this nation is on this distraction, uh, understanding black political thought is how we can move forward, how we navigate yes, yes. forward, understanding the past, and how we won't dupe, get duped in thinking that we've gotten some, and then it'll put us back so many years like mass incarceration. We were going out for, you know, justice, equality, uh, um, you know, the getting rid of Jim Crow laws. And then you found out that you, you know, they can enslave you if you're in the prison system. You know, if you're going, yeah, the prison industrial complex. And I said we started off this decade with dealing with the new Jim Crow. We started off, you know, 2010 with the new Jim Crow. And then we ended up in a period of just mercy. So it's still this constant battle of getting justice. And, you know, we still have people that are getting on, that are still sitting on death's world to this day. Mm -hmm. And they did not get the justice. Um um so again we have a lot we we covered a lot of ground today i just want i i just want to say i'm i'm probably going to i'm going to replay it and it's going to be a part one part two um so we'll i'll let let dr pinder know when we're going to do um the part two and again i really appreciate her coming in and sharing her knowledge and her wisdom and to her students um, you have a gem of a teacher out there, a gem of a professor out there who is all the way in Dallas Fort Worth sharing, sharing, sharing critical knowledge and information that is going to go national. Um, and it's right here at the Doc Bookshop in Dallas Fort Worth on Doc Radio. And uh, we appreciate you. We appreciate um, California State University for sending um Dr. Sharon Pinder out to Dallas-Fort Worth Market. We um, Thank you, Cambridge University Press. Thank you to Doc Bookshop. You're on Doc Power Hour. I hope you got a lot of information, especially to our community leaders. Continue to tune in each and every week at 7 p.m. We'll be bringing the latest and greatest to empowering our communities. Again, thank you for tuning in to Doc Power Hour.